Well, before I get started, I'll first say, good morning. My name's Rory. I'm Rory Dardich. I have a last name. And I'm one of the pastors here, too, if you didn't know that already. I don't always get to introduce myself every week uh, when I'm leading over here. Uh, But before I start my timer, I'm going to just give two quick things. First of all, I am super grateful that I get to just preach and be down there with you guys. And, and it, like when I'm leading from here, it's always encouraging to me to hear you singing. And I have a speaker going here, so I make sure I stay in tune and all that. But it is really encouraging to hear you singing from here. To sit down there with you guys, even with a clogged ear, which is a long story, I can still hear you guys singing with me. It is so awesome. And I just thank you for that. I'm grateful for Sarah and, and the others who have, have taken turns leading here for that provide that opportunity for me. Glory to God with that. And secondly, I forgot what the other one was, so we're going to move on. Um, so, yeah, it probably had something to do with making an excuse for changing the mic in the middle of the reading of Scripture. But anyway, moving on. All right, so last week's passage in the book of Acts that Mitch was preaching out of, uh, we saw how, <clears throat> how Paul navigated his tense situation, particularly tense situation, with wisdom, claiming rights at the right time where previously in other circumstances he hadn't. Um, we saw him face the Jewish high council and the false accusations that they brought against him in Jerusalem. We even saw him repent when he mistakenly, but wrongly, cursed the high priest for ordering he be slapped in the mouth. And ultimately, his situation was advanced, ultimately, his situation was advanced by declaring that he was really on trial because of his belief in the resurrection from the dead. Of course, ultimately alluding to Jesus' resurrection. And last week, as we left him still in Roman custody, back in the barracks, and he was there and he he received in person encouragement from the Lord as that, that he had done well, like Jesus appears to him, right? Uh, we'll read it in a little bit. But uh, that, that he had done well, he was being faithful, and he would bring the gospel to Rome. He would preach the gospel to Rome. And we're actually going to start with that verse, which is the end of last week's passage in a few minutes. Um, because uh, I think it really helpfully kicks off the theme I found in today's passage. That theme is, that, is God's thorough and amazing providence. Um, Now, to kick that off, to set that up, if you have never tried raw green beans before, let me just say they're a light and delicious snack, okay? Uh, They're they're healthy, they're refreshing, they're a little sweet and crispy, they're a little snap to them, you know? And it's an easy way to get veggies in there with your family pizza and a movie night or whatever. You know, it's, it's really nice until one of your kids turns out to be allergic to them and starts calling them death sticks, and stuff like that. And then you have to get a little more creative. But until I was in college, I had never dreamed of eating raw green beans just like a snack or whatever. Until one day, uh, Amy and I, were, we were dating at this point, and we were sitting on her parents' front porch swing, munching raw green beans. It's an indelible memory, just because it was new. And I thought it was weird, because like, you don't eat raw potatoes. you know. Anyway... But it was really good, and I was really grateful to be enlightened. So we're sitting there on the porch swing, and I don't know if I was feeling philosophical or something, but I was pondering the existence and and the makeup of green beans and, and said out loud something like, 
how does the green bean, how does the plant know that it needs to make the meat part of the bean around the seed part of the bean so that when it falls to the ground, it has fertilizer and stuff like that to nourish the seed so, when it, can, so it can sprout and thrive and multiply green beans. Because that's what I was taught is why there's, the seeds are that way on plants that bear seeds. And she kind of looked at me. I'm not sure for how long anymore, but I may have dramatized it in my mind because now I feel silly. But she looked at me, maybe questioning my theology, and, and finally was like, for us to eat. <laughs> and it was like a lightning bolt moment for me because I had never thought of it before. I had been a follower of Jesus for several years at this point, and I'd also given attention to and decidedly rejected evolution. And, 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 and yet, I was still thinking in my humanistic, evolution-educated, default perspective in this area, and probably many area, other areas it was kind of opening my eyes to. And what that, what that meant to me is that this is one example of how I was still stuck in certain ways in my natural way of approaching life and creation uh, to the point where I couldn't see God's providence of the designed nourishment for me, even though it was staring me in the face as I'm pondering it. I'm trying to think of a natural explanation for why this is like this. It's like he didn't have a hand in it. The point is like our message today, this is a story, my story, the story from today, of perspective adjustment on providence. We need our perspective adjusted about God's providence. So what we're going to find is that this passage displays... I'm going to crack my voice a lot today probably because I'm tired and I found out I was 48 in the middle of a high ropes course yesterday. Anyway, um, so anyway, so this passage, main idea, this passage displays ways God provides... I'm exhausted, is my point. And teaches us that we can trust him even if his provision or the results are different than what we could expect or desire. This passage displays ways God provides and teaches us that we can trust him even if his provision or the results are different than what we would expect or desire. And we're going to intentionally look for that in this passage See how God's working and everything in the events we're going to read. And then find ways to apply that same effort to our lives. But before we do, uh, please pray with me for uh, God to deliver what he wants to all of our hearts. And for us to receive it well and uh, to apply it to our lives. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that I didn't have to wear multiple hats. That was such a blessing, such freedom. Thank you for the people that, that, that make that possible. Thank you for your word, and thank you that there is always going to be something more that you can open our eyes to about ourself, about you, and to make us more like Jesus. Please do that now as we hear your word. Please preach through me way better than I could put it together myself and bring glory and transformation in all of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So, if you've got your Bibles and haven't yet, turn to Acts 23, chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along with paper because it's just good and tangible, um, there should be a Bible under your seat or under the seat next to you. And those are our community Bibles. That's on page 932 of our community Bibles. And if you, you know, they're always here if you forget your Bible. 
and, and need to grab one. But if you don't own a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We want you to be able to have it, never be without it, and be able to engage God and his word anytime, anywhere. So it's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. So again, page 932 on there. We're starting, yeah, we're actually going to start in verse 11, but I'm not reading just yet anyway. So as I said, the first bit of providence we're going to look at comes from the end of last week's passage, verse 11. But it serves as a good intro for this long passage we're covering. Um, so in verse 11, we find providential direct encouragement. Providential direct encouragement. So Jesus appears to Paul to personally encourage him for his past faithfulness and promises, recognize promises that he will preach the gospel in Rome. Paul now has a guarantee that however this goes, I'm preaching the gospel in Rome because Jesus said so and nobody can undo that. So I'm going to Rome somehow. And as a personal visit by the Lord Jesus to encourage someone, I would say definitely qualifies as divine providence, wouldn't you? Yeah, okay, okay we're all on the same page here. We're tracking. Uh, now let's recognize right off the bat that we can get used to seeing the miraculous and supernatural ways God provides and works things out for Paul as we're reading Acts and as we hear his different uh, letters and stuff like that. So I think it's important to point out that not only are the examples of providence that follow this one uh, you know, further down the spectrum of common, natural, or subtle, but also that we may not, that's the reason we may not recognize them as providence at all until we're intentionally looking for it, like I was as I was studying and trying to figure out what connects all of this. What was Mitch looking at when he assigned me such a long passage? No. Um, but so we're all on the same page there, too, probably. So it's intentional. We need to be intentional with looking for his providence, okay? And if we're not, in most of our lives as well as scripture, we miss it a lot of times. And I'm going to probably say that four more times before you get to leave. Um, so, like I said, the same thing happens in our daily lives. Um, and I want to suggest that's because one reason would be similar to my green bean story. Like, it's residual from our old lives. You know, we're being made into the image of Christ. Our standing before God is the image of Christ which is mind-blowing, and we can't wrap our heads around that completely. But our experience is we're being made more and more into the image of Christ. But we still suffer influence from not being in the image of Christ, even in how we think, even in how we approach life and everything. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times the best we'll do is realize we need to run to God when we see a need or we have things we can't explain. But even then, our natural bent, which... I bet if we were being honest, a lot of people could confess to this, is to more take a superstitious route to God than to actually run to God. So our, our old nature just makes things complicated, and I'm just wanting to point that out for us. So it makes a lot of sense that it's very natural for us to function like health and food and shelter and drinkable water and safety and breathable air should be present in our lives because we're used to them being so. Like it's a given, like God promised we will always have clean water wherever we go. Because, of course, clean water comes out of the tap, right? But it's an awakening from such assumptions. 
to realize that he holds all things together applies here too. All right, Colossians 1.17, he holds all things together. And, and that everything continues to exist because he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command, according to Hebrews 1.3, which we just read if you're doing CBR on Friday. And that every good and perfect gift is from his hands, ultimately, according to James and Jesus. Okay? Water comes out of your faucet and not limestone sludge, ultimately because he wants it to be so. Because he holds the things together that keep the pipes from breaking and letting the wrong thing through and all that kind of stuff. He is ultimately providing clean water from the tap that we just expect to have clean water in it. Every breath we have, we should rightfully be thanking him for. We would say every breath we have comes from him. Everyone should come with a thank you, right? You know, thank you, God. Thank you for that one, too, God. Oh, that was a good one. Thank you, Lord. You know, obviously that would get exhausting and we wouldn't get nothing else done. So he doesn't expect us to thank him for every autonomic thing our bodies do, you know, but they all are from him. So it makes total sense to see his hand of providence in even the minuscule and mundane everyday stuff of life. All right. I'm not just, you know, straining, you know, I'm not just splitting hairs here. It really makes sense if he holds everything together, right? So let's check our, pres- our, our, our presumptions here with this first thing, this first providence, which is verse 11 again. I'm almost reading it. I just keep talking about it. If you only knew the book of Acts to this point, you'd never read it before. No one's ever explained it to you. You don't know what's coming next for Paul. And you read Jesus telling him, be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. What would you think would be on Paul's mind? What would it, if you were in Paul's shoes, what would you take from that kind of a promise? Jesus is appearing to me in prison and says, I'm going to preach the gospel in Rome. Yes! The suffering and imprisonment the Spirit warned me about was way shorter than I expected. God just promised to free me from prison and get me out of this situation so I can carry on with my plans to get to Rome. And, ooh, and, and after that, maybe I'll even get to Spain. Now, we don't have any reason to expect that Paul actually took that, but that's the natural way we would tend to read, like without knowing, you know, our natural reaction to those kind of promises and that kind of reaction. I mean, statement would tend to go that way. He didn't necessarily say that, but humanly, it'd be understandable if he did. In fact, it wouldn't be the first supernatural jailbreak we've seen just in the book of Acts at this point, and from a certain point of view, even in his life. So it would actually be kind of reasonable if he assumed that. It would be wrong, but it would be reasonable. My point is, we tend to read a lot of our own expectations and assumptions into God's promises. And that is what presuming is. We tend to need consistent reminding that God's ways and thoughts are much different and higher than ours. That uh, his understanding of the facts, the situations, the future, and how everything works together for his glory and his plan are supremely and hilariously beyond us. So when he promises something, we need to be careful to take him at his word and not add to it with our own assumptions of how, it's going to, how he's going to work it out, right? Which, again, we're really good at. For example, he has not failed in his promise to never leave us or forsake us 
for the believers in India who are living homeless in the jungle, or were at least, they may have found a camp now, but who were living homeless in the jungle in the last few months, even through a hurricane. They're living homeless in the jungle because of persecution. They were run, there was a big, massive wave of persecution, violent persecution, villages destroyed. They fled into the jungle. And some of them are living homeless in the jungle for weeks and months, even through a hurricane. Okay? Now, they reasonably could feel pretty forsaken while they're living through a hurricane in the middle of the jungle, like, got a leaf over my head. You know, you guys, have, a lot of you have been through a hurricane. That sounds kind of awful, right? Sounds like it would make sense to feel forlorn and forsaken. And it makes sense you'd feel that way where you're going through it. But the problem here isn't God's faithfulness. It's our expectations of how he's faithful. We define faithfulness for him and expect him to follow through, right? And glory to God, by the Spirit's power, we can even feel not forsaken as we're hiding from a hurricane under a banana tree leaf or something, you know? So, with all of that framework in mind that we've spent time on so far, we're going to now get into today's passage and apply things this way. So, we just heard 23, 12 through 35. I'm not going to read it again for time. And hopefully you followed it even with my interruption. But anyway. um, But it detailed a providential foiling of a murder plot. A providential foiling of a murder plot. So first, it's amazing and providential that someone who cares about Paul heard the plan at all, right? We don't know why his nephew was in Jerusalem. Maybe his family lived there. Maybe he was there to study under Gamaliel like Paul did. We don't know. We also don't know why his nephew wanted to protect Paul. It could have been just because he was family and that was enough. It could have been because... He, maybe his whole family, had come to Christ at this point. We really don't know. Um, Regardless, he was in the right place at the right time and wasn't noticed or considered a threat by the conspirators. And he was able to get to the barracks and get the info to them before anything could happen. That right there is amazing and providential. Next, it's just as remarkable that the commander believed Paul's nephew and acted on the information. He didn't need to believe some Jewish boy about the safety of a prisoner, both of those, many Romans would have been like, whatever, kid, get out of here. You know, you're like, you're messing up my barracks with your Jewishness or something because they were very anti-Semitic in most cases. You know, that really, he didn't have to take anything from this kid. But it was amazing and providential that he did. Commander Claudius Lysias, Lysias was clearly taking that threat seriously and Paul's safety very seriously. That could have been because he knows he already violated Paul's rights as a Roman citizen, so he was... Going to make sure that didn't happen anymore. Uh, So he mobilizes the forces at his disposal and sends 470 Roman warriors of different types to accomplish the goal of keeping Paul safe and getting him to the governor for a fair trial. Just just in case you didn't do the math, not only would the Roman warriors have outclassed whatever mob they'd put together to ambush Paul, they would have outnumbered them more than 10 to 1. So... This is very thorough protection for one lowly prisoner. You know, he was making sure. And of course, you know the church when they heard about this, that Paul was kept safe and now he's gone and he's out of the reach of these people. You know, they would have rejoiced. And I think, like them, we can see the providence in this, right? Can you? 
It's like, oh, wow, this kid was there at the right time. Oh, this guy took it. Paul's taken care of. We can see it all. And honestly, Paul being kept safe is a desirable outcome. I think we're all on the same page with that. But remember, as we go from here, the story continues and the providence and the outcomes get less obvious and less what we might write for our own story. Okay, so let's proceed so we can wrestle with that. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 23 from chapter 24. So now we're before Felix. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer Tertullus to present their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long and a long period of peace for us Jews with the foresight and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, your excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. Why do I want to do this in a British accent? We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is consistently stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. The governor motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, uh, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. But I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always tried to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting. But some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. All right. So, here we find a providential governor in office. A providential governor in office. And by that, I do not mean a Christian governor in office. We will talk about his character in a sec. Um, First, a few details about this section of the text. So, Paul's unique innocence to the accusations of the Jewish leaders is really kind of impressive. It's, It's 
uh, right in line with Luke's record, of course. He stirred up no riots. He caused no trouble and wouldn't have wanted to desecrate the temple, right? Because he believes everything they believe and believes it's sacred and, and, and all that. And I know nothing of legal proceedings now or in Roman times. But you got to think that the Jewish leaders could have been pretty upset with Tertullus for overstating the reality of what they could prove happened in Jerusalem, right? And having no witnesses from the places where maybe Paul could have been more made to look like he caused riot with something he said, you know? But as it was, they couldn't really substantiate anything. That's something that stands out to me. It's just, just interesting and important to review. Second thing I want to point out is my, my translation, probably different than most, if not all in here, called it, said that the, the Tertullus called the way, Christianity, a cult as opposed to a sect, okay? Sect is probably the right word for what was there in the Greek, right? There's no problem with that. The one difference is this is not a word-for-word translation. It's a thought-for-thought translation. And so they will pick a different word sometimes if it carries the meaning that they're really trying to express. And so I'm not saying anything bad about calling it a sect. It's good. It's right. But when we think of a sect today... We tend to think of kind of they're on the fringe, right? They're, they're, they're a lot like us, but maybe we wouldn't be able to partner with them. You know, we wouldn't necessarily call them a cult, but they're questionable in a lot of their doctrine and stuff like that. They're on the fringes. I won't name names or anything. But, but we have that sort of part of the whole connection with the term sect. Cult is much more in line with what the Jewish leaders were trying to accomplish by calling it that back in the day. They were wanting to make it clear, this guy is not a part of us. And honestly, this whole way thing, this whole Nazarene thing, is, is, is an illegal, unknown, new religion as far as Rome is concerned and should be illegal. Okay? And if they'd had their way with that, which and that, that very much more, when, we, when using the word cult, expresses that they are something completely different that looks like us. You know? And we can go there with like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, you know, all that kind of stuff. It starts to, it starts to sound a lot Christian, but then not be. So that, that's why that word carries actually the, the weight that they're trying to get at. Is they are completely different from us. And they were hoping that that would further pow- power their opposition to the church and make things a lot harder for the church because they would claim nothing from them because they've rejected Christ. Um, I found Paul's admission that he follows the way really well explained um, in the Africa Bible commentary, which is one of the ones I've turned to for perspective and stuff like that. It says, Paul did, however, admit to being what Tertullus called a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. But he explained his belief in somewhat different words. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as, follower of, as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. But his belief would not lead him to desecrate the temple, quote, for I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, unquote, from verse 14. Paul was saying that what his accusers called a sect was actually the way to God that they were missing, right? Um, And he also admits to one more thing, right? And this is the thing that, that, that Mitch got into a little bit last week that he's on trial for his belief in the resurrection from the dead. Um, Verse 20 to 21 reads, 
Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, like Mitch addressed last week, this is almost certainly not an admission of guilt for doing this in the Sanhedrin, even though he knew it was going to divide things just by the makeup of the council. He knew these people were on this side, people were on this side, and that kind of thing. Um, If he were recounting his wrongs from the Jerusalem trial... Uh, he most likely would have included the actual wrong he did and repented of, of, you know, cursing the high priest for wanting him struck in the mouth. Um, Again, uh, that's something he repented for then. But this, being a follower of the way and declaring that he is um, on trial for his belief in the resurrection, he never repents of. Okay, so this isn't a confession of guilt. This is the confession of why he's on trial. Now, the providence in this passage. Notice in verse 22, towards the end of the passage that we were reading, the the section we were reading, uh, Governor Felix was quite familiar, the NLT's wording, and the ESV says it, had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Okay? He was quite familiar or had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Now, this does not mean that he was necessarily sympathetic at all. It clearly does not paint him as a Christian, first of all. And it doesn't mean he's sympathetic towards the way at all. But he would have had more insight on this whole dispute, what's going on between the Jewish leaders and Paul, uh, that's presented to him without being predisposed to prefer one or dismiss one or the other out of hand, right? And he wouldn't have had to have been brought up to speed with this whole dispute. Like, what is this whole thing again? There's a guy, okay, he was from Nazareth? Really? Was there anything good that can come out? No. You know, like, why? He's alive? Oh, come on. They say he's alive. We crucified him, right? We do our job well. You know, he didn't have to figure out any of this stuff. He just, he was ready, ready there and, and aware of what this whole dispute was about. So, that may have allowed him for a more thoughtful, less rash approach to the case, which kept Paul alive and safe and even gave him a measure of freedom to access friends who would have cared for him. So let's think about that result in verse 23. Even though Paul wasn't freed, he was able to be cared for by the church and had some semblance of freedom as opposed to being a run-of-the-mill prisoner like he was before this point. All right? Now, you might be thinking, hold up a sec. Paul was still incarcerated? This isn't justice. Has God lost his power? What didn't, didn't he promise something when we started this message? Seriously, though, can you see the providence here, even though Paul is still a prisoner? I think you can, because I've been laboring over it, right? Maybe you could have anyway. I don't mean to sell you short. But what I want to ask on top of that, though, is would we be willing to praise God for his providence like this if we were in Paul's place? Maybe we'd see it. Maybe we wouldn't. Would you see it? With some modicum of freedom, whatever that exactly was, and the ability to see friends, most likely the brothers and sisters in Christ in Caesarea, who would care for him. Would that feel like providence, even though you're still in jail? I don't know. So let's, let's finish the passage with verses 24 to 27. Let's see. And I'll, give you, I'll actually give it to you before I read it so you can, you can have it in mind as we read it we find in this part of the passage a providential opportunity for the gospel. A providential opportunity for the gospel. (coughs) 
All right, I'm going to read 24 to 27. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a Jew, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened and as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is a more convenient time, I'll call for you again. He also hoped Paul would bribe him, so he sent him for him quite often and talked with him. After two years went by this way, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. All right. So, can you see the opportunity amid the weird treatment Paul got for two years? Can you see the opportunity for the gospel in it? He's talking to one guy and his wife. Who knows if she was there every time. Felix's potential curiosity about the way his... uh, I'm sorry. So you combine Felix's potential curiosity and his confirmed crooked greed that's wanting a bribe. You put those together, and that really does provide an opportunity for Paul to explain the gospel to him numerous times and in numerous ways. I mean... Paul was clearly having some impact too. Like the spirit seems like it had to have been moving. He had to have been moving somehow because Felix was getting afraid. And there were historical reasons I could get into for why this probably impacted him this way. But not only do we not have time, his details don't matter. When we're confronted with the truth and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and judgment, it does bring up fear, reasonably and rightfully so. Okay, so, so details aside, there was some impact happening here in Paul's repeated opportunities. So, can you find any comfort or encouragement in the fact that Felix's curiosity and crooked greed gave Paul opportunities for the gospel? Like there was nothing there's nothing great about Felix's interest here. We can actually take some comfort in that. We can be encouraged by this. Consider the facts of life for Paul during this 2-year period. He's frequently called in to discuss the truths of God that he's so passionate about, the gospel that he's just living to tell people. Essentially for someone's entertainment or maybe uh, academic enjoyment or whatever. You know, like um, your audience is there pretty much until the truth scares them off or they get bored with you. I don't know, this went on for two years, so it might not have always been scary. Or they finally realize you are not going to bribe him yet again for the 26th time. You know, like, this is, the, this is the experience he's had, right? What attitude would you have going through this? Maybe not every day. Maybe every week, every two weeks. You're in prison, whatever. You're doing your thing. And, okay, it's time to go talk to, to Felix again. All right, Felix. You going to listen this time? Nope, still not going to pay you. No? Okay, maybe next week. You know, like... Would you be frustrated? Would you be put out that you're being treated like a court gesture of, with the truth of God? Or would you realize, would you, would you have that opportunity, that expectation, that hope, that excitement of, all right, all right, here's my chance. I know it's number 32, but this one might be Felix's day. Here we go. All right, Felix, I'm going to go for it again. 32, oh, not today. All right, well, ask me back again, man. 33 might be your number. I'll be back. You know, like, which would be your attitude? I know which would tend to be mine until God opens my eyes to the opportunity that's in front of me. 
Do you see the gospel opportunities in front of you now? They may not be there, but they might be, and we're just not noticing them as much. And they might be big opportunities where you get to explain the whole gospel to somebody and or share your whole story of how you came to faith in Christ. And maybe even to the point where you get to invite somebody to repent of their sins like you did and put their trust in Jesus like you did and start following him and leaving their old self behind like you did and be that new creation filled with his spirit. And maybe they're little ones where you show kindness to someone for the 16th time and get to explain that you're kind because Jesus was kind to you and he's making you like himself and he's making you kind. And that's it. That's as far as you can get. Or you serve someone because he served you and you're able to serve them even though you don't get to say a word. Is that a gospel opportunity? Or you get to care for someone who's suffering and can't understand why God would allow it. And you can't, or shouldn't at least, speak to the situation right now. But you just give them your time and your care. And maybe in the days and weeks to come, they're willing to engage on those questions. And you can start talking about Jesus and pointing them to him. Is that a gospel opportunity? Or you get to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ and help each other see how the gospel applies to your family and your work and the other situations and struggles in your life. All of these are gospel opportunities right around us. And if we would be more alert about how God is actively providing for us, we'll begin to discover big and small ones as well. They go hand in hand because God provides those along with air and water and heartbeats. So, let's arrive at our conclusion here. Because of his providence, we must learn to trust Christ in all situations. Because of his, because of his providence, we must learn to trust Christ in all situations. Now, as we've seen in the passage, God is at work even when Scripture doesn't narrate it that way. Right? He doesn't say, look, it's providence again, everyone. You know, he doesn't say a word, but it is providence happening right there in black and white. Just not called that. It's in the normal, everyday stuff of life. The unfolding of events. And this is just as true for us today, if we'll take notice. And if we know this and remind ourselves of it, I suspect we'll experience and see and live life differently. Okay? trusting him all the more. So remember, one, God's providence is not always easy to see, explain, or accept. God's providence is not always easy to see, explain, or accept. And what I'm getting at with that statement is our difficulty to perceive it, to perceive what he's doing, to perceive what he's given, what he's going to do. And like we've already examined, our ability to perceive God's providence is directly tied to how much we're paying attention Versus being focused on other things for whatever reason. Whether it's our old selves still influencing how we think or just the struggles we're going through and where our focus is at. We're being dragged away by other things. I hope and I suspect I'm not alone in the struggle against my tendency to haphazardly go through life ignorant of God's presence and activity and providence. Now let's make it okay 
but I take a little comfort in knowing that we're in this together. And even though I frequently marvel at his handiwork in nature in so many different ways, I really do. I mean, people hear me talk about it at times, uh, and I marvel at it in my own life and other people's lives. I am so quick to find natural explanations for things which aren't untrue, but he's also the author and, and engineer and, and, and worker of the gears of all of that stuff too, right? I'm so quick to see natural explanations for things and automatically, unintentionally dismiss God is literally active in them. So, And also remember too, God's providence is not always the way we want or expect. Is not always the way we want or expect. We are quick to go to God with requests for what we need and want. But we frequently don't realize that he has already provided for us, even for the very needs we're praying about in a lot of cases. And this is evidence of blindness or faithlessness or immaturity or something that we need to recognize and repent of and grow in. And any difficulty in accepting the way he provides as opposed to seeing um, our expectations and assumptions fulfilled comes from a self-centered pride that doesn't understand or at least doesn't function with understanding of who God is and who we are. So think of that statement I just made. Accepting the way he provides as opposed to seeing our expectations and assumptions fulfilled as opposed to very natural English came right out of my mouth. actually came right on a page and eventually now just came right out of my mouth. How unappealing does that sound? Our desires and assumptions being opposed to God. That's more identifying with being an enemy who is opposed to God, right? So we really need to be alert to these things. We don't want to function as we're opposed to God and his provision. But we, we're quick to be when we put those assumptions and expectations on him. And I think the ultimate example of this, real quick, is the Messiah himself. Israel spent so long anticipating a Messiah they'd never see because he was something they weren't expecting. They had built up expectations and completely missed him. And there's a lot more at work in all that. I don't mean to oversimplify. But it's a great illustration for what we do all the time. As we follow Jesus, we'll have our expectations and assumptions on his provision and his, his protection and his promises and how it's supposed to get worked out and miss what he's doing, miss how he's trying to use us and work in us. Our youth workers are reading a book called Sticky Faith. We're actually reading the youth workers edition. It was originally a, a book for parents, which I have a copy of if anybody wants to read it. Um, but it was adapted to, for use with, with youth ministry. And um, in the chapter we just read as a team, it suggests a principle for helping students understand faith uh, based on the Greek word pisteuo. pisteuo. Uh, and you can correct me on my pronunciation later, Mitch and Chris and, and y'all, but I think I got close. Anyway, and it's translated in different ways throughout the New Testament as faith or trust or believe, especially as there's different, you know, different uh, 
semblances of the word. Um, and partially because of culture creating a more mushy understanding of the concepts of faith and belief, uh, the authors suggest using trust in most of these cases to help students understand that we're call- what we're called to do in each situation. So, like, in their research, I'm going to just quote them a couple of times. In their work and in their research, they found that the concept of trusting God with a given issue, person, or circumstance is often easier to grasp than using concepts of faith or belief. Not wrong to use those words. Absolutely true to use those words. Equally true to use faith. I mean, trust. Um, and they suggest that every decision, every thought, and every action comes down to this. Where do I place my trust? Do I trust my own instincts and desires and convictions, or do I trust Christ? And it's our primary calling to hash that out as we grow spiritually. And it's a great question for us to be asking consistently in our daily lives. So I think through this passage, we have seen uh, it display ways God provides, ways God provides, and teaches us that we can trust him even if his provision or the results of it are different than we would expect or desire. But I want to give you our reflection questions here for today to help you personally process this just a little bit more, even even taking that with you. This is actually, I'll just tell you, these questions, you can go ahead and put them up, Jessica, because I like to point. These questions are actually the fuel for a lot of our family devotions. I encourage you, you know, week to week, use these in conversations in different ways. Like, how did you answer this one? Did you have an answer for this one? Does this stand out to you at all? Not because this is scripture, but because they ask intentional pointed questions. So, consider these. In what ways has your approach to daily life kept you from seeing and celebrating his provision for you? How has God provided for you in ways you wish he'd provided differently? And what does that confront in your heart? How can you be more alert to God's providence and gospel opportunities, big and small, in the course of everyday life? How can you daily rejoice in God's provision for you and help others see and rejoice in it too? And last, in what way, new ways have you recognized your need to trust Jesus is actively providing for you every day? So take a couple minutes or a minute or so and process those and see which ones God particularly brings out. Even start to answer them, talk to God about them, make note of them, and... Uh, I'll pray for us in a minute. Oh, good, good Father. You have provided for us incredibly, profoundly, unexplainably, certainly undeservedly. Please open our eyes to see your provision 
all around us, like we're sitting, okay, this is bad for Brendan, but if like we're sitting in strawberry fields and can just lay there and enjoy, you have provided and blessed so well. And maybe that was a weird picture, God, but, but Lord, I thank you that, you know, several of us, particularly Dr. John, like even in our conversation today was, was expressing how he is doing better than he deserves. I thank you that that's true of all of us every day. Thank you for your provision, your protection that we just expect in some ways. Please open our eyes to that. Help us trust you more intentionally, more directly, even more and more and more. Looking forward to the day when not only we'll be doing better than we deserve, we'll be doing better than we deserve and get how much we don't deserve it and how good we have it, especially when we're made perfect in your, in your presence. We will both see the profoundness of how much you've provided and blessed and how, not we won't dwell on how much we don't deserve it, thankfully, but we will get it all the more. You are so good. Please help us worship you now for how you've taken care of us and we can trust you no matter what comes and however you provide. We trust your plan, your story, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.